Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Rico Browning, best known for his work as the Gill Man in the Creature from the Black Lagoon films, has died at the age of 93. We shot in the wintertime at Wakulla Springs, and uh, water temperature was about 51. The air temperature at that time was 49. So it got pretty chilly. We'll discuss segregated housing policies in Dade County. Throughout the 20th century, government agencies played a powerful role in creating and sustaining racially separate and segregated housing in Dade County, Florida. And talk about the Spanish military hospital in St. Augustine. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Native Floridian Rico Browning, best known for portraying the Gill Man in all of the underwater scenes for the three Creature from the Black Lagoon films, has died at the age of 93. Browning was also the creative force behind the film and TV series Flipper and worked on many other projects, including the James Bond movie Thunderball. Rico Browning got his start in the early 1950s entertaining tourists at Wikiwachi. We put on an underwater night show at Wikiwachi, and it was very successful. However, there was only one motel at Wikiwachi at that time, and you had to travel 18 miles into Brooksville to get to the next motel. So I got the bright idea, why not go to Silver Springs, because they got motels everywhere, and tourists, and do an underwater show there at night. So I came up and talked to Bill Ray, who was the son of Ray Davidson and Ray, and his brother, Buck Ray, who was the general manager. And I talked to them about doing a night show at Silver Springs and building an underwater theater. And they turned me down. But just as I was leaving, Bill said, Bill Ray, he said, Rico, look, why don't you let me give you a job here? And over a period of time, we'll talk him into doing it. I said, well, fine. So he made me the assistant director of public relations at Silver Springs. And I was in that job for about five years. Rico Browning met director Jack Arnold and was hired to portray the Gill Man in all of the underwater scenes for Creature from the Black Lagoon. He wore a distinctive, cumbersome costume. I put it this way, when you're a kid and you play football, you put on a uniform, shoulder pads and everything, and it's pretty clumsy. But when you get in a game, you forget you even have it on. So it's about the same with the suit. It was a little awkward, but once I got into the water and started using it, I forgot I have it on. It was sponge rubber covered with latex, and I had to wear lead weights, chest plate, thigh pads of lead, and lead around my ankles so I'd sink because it was made of rubber. And uh, we shot in the wintertime 
at Wakulla Springs, and uh, water temperature was about 51. The air temperature at that time was 49. So it got pretty chilly, yeah, cold. One of the most suspenseful scenes in the 1954 film Creature from the Black Lagoon has scientist Kay Lawrence, played by Julie Adams, taking a swim, unaware that the Gilman creature is swimming just below her. The scene was challenging for Browning. We had a director, nice man, but he couldn't swim. So he was in an inner tube on the surface looking down at what we were doing. So uh, the cameraman, Scotty Wilburn, kind of took over directing underwater. And so he said, well, let's swim downriver with Ginger and uh, get the scene of following her. And so I swam with her, and uh, vision was the poorest thing in the suit. The eye sat about an inch away from my eye, and I didn't use a face mask or a goggle because if they filled with water, I couldn't get rid of the water. So I went with a naked eye. So it was a blurred vision looking through a keyhole. So the only way I could see her was when I swam upside down. So I had to swim upside down underneath her in order to follow her down the river. Most of the underwater filming for Creature from the Black Lagoon was done at Wakala Springs, but some was done at Silver Springs. At Silver Springs, down river, about a quarter of a mile, there's a little spring on the left with a house and we used that spring there to shoot the scenes of the creature trying to move all the logs and everything. And that was shot here at Silver Springs. The rest of it was shot at Wakulla Springs. Browning would reprise his underwater role for the two Creature from the Black Lagoon sequels, the only actor to portray the Gill Man in all three films. After the Creature series of films, Browning became the stuntman and underwater director for the TV show Sea Hunt, working with producer Ivan Tors. He's quite a guy, very sharp, and uh, we did a third year of Sea Hunt at Silver Springs and shot all the episodes for that year. And uh, I was hired to just be the bad guy, and I would fight Courtney Brown, who was the double for Lloyd Bridges, in just about every scene and I had to wear different bathing suits, different hair or makeup, either go as a blonde or a brunette or wear a hood. I enjoyed it very much, and uh, we, we then moved to, to Nassau and shot the remaining couple of years of Sea Hunt over there. After the success of Sea Hunt, Browning and co-writer Jack Cowden took the story of a very intelligent dolphin named Flipper to producer Ivan Tours. We wrote it as a book, and uh, we went to Lake Weir Bruce Mozart's house, and we spent the whole week and weekend writing this little book. And so we wrote it, and uh, I went to New York with my last 200 bucks and tried to promote it as a book. And I went to three publishing houses, and one seemed very interested, and I never heard back from them. I left them with a book and some pictures and drawings and everything. And so I got the bright idea that if I could say a producer in Hollywood is considering it as a movie, maybe they'll publish the book. So I called Ivan and I said, Ivan, will you do me a favor? I said, I'd like to, to get my book published about a boy and a dolphin. And uh, would you say you're considering it as a movie? He said, yeah, well, okay. And he said, but send me a copy. So I did, I mailed him a copy, and I called the book company and I said, hey, uh, the producer in Hollywood wants to make this into a movie. Can we get the book going? 
and they talked and hemmed and hawed, and I never heard back from them. But I did hear from Ivan. Ivan said, I didn't read your book. He said, but my wife did, and she loved it. So she made me read it. I love it. He said, let's make a movie. So he got the money from MGM, and we made the first feature, and then four years of television. They call him Flipper, Flipper, faster than lightning. No one you see is smarter than he. And we know Flipper lives in a world full of wonder, flying there under, under the sea. Rico Browning discovered a special dolphin named Mitzi to play Flipper on screen. So I spent the next three, four months training Mitzi to do the things that we needed for the show. Well, I wasn't an animal trainer, and I had to learn with the dolphin. And the, one of the hardest things was to get the dolphin to ride the boy. And I couldn't figure out exactly how to do it. But I would throw a ball or whatever, and she would retrieve it and bring it back. And I, my son was there with me, a helping trainer, and he was a little boy. And he had on cut off jeans. And I got the bright idea, if she retrieves a ball, why not retrieve a boy? So I said, Ricky, do me a favor. I said, when I throw the ball, you jump in the water and we'll see what Mitzi does. So I did, and he jumped in the water and she tried to bring him to me and she didn't know how to do it. So she grabbed the little loops in, the, in his cut off jeans and tried to pull him. Well, he accidentally put his hand up in the uh, water and got caught onto her fin, and she rode him right to me. I said, hey, this is great. So I said, go way across the pond, and I'm going to throw the ball over your head. You jump in the water over there. And when she comes, hold on to her and see if she brings her to me. And it was quite a distance. And I threw the ball way over his head. He jumped in the water. She went over there and rode him right to me. Well, the cameraman for the movie was Lamar Boren, and he was living in a cottage next to mine where we were staying. And I yelled up at him, I said, Lamar, I said, come in here, get your camera and come down here. So he photographed Ricky riding the dolphin. And I called Ivan, and I said, Ivan, we got it. And we spent the next three months working on all the different tricks that Flipper had to do in the movie. In 1969, Browning directed the underwater scenes for the film Hello Down There. In the movie, a scientist moves his family into an underwater habitat. The film was produced by Ivan Tours and reunited Browning with director Jack Arnold. Jack Arnold's a great guy, and I enjoyed working with him. On the stage, a large stage at Ivan Tours Studios, we had a big swimming pool, and we built this little dome over the swimming pool where the people lived underwater. By the way, it was, I think, Richard Dreyfuss's first film. We had the dome built over the swimming pool, and we used the dolphins in there and the submarine. But then we exterior, we shot in the Bahamas, and we had a little dome built there, and we'd go up with the submarine, and they would dump garbage, and we'd get the shots of the sharks eating the garbage and everything. It was a lot of fun. Actor, filmmaker, and native Floridian Rico Browning died at his home on February 27th at the age of 93. 
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. People moving out, people moving in wide Because of the color of the skin Run, 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 but you sure can't hide Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, academic historians spend most of their time in classroom teaching, research, and writing, but sometimes they take on other roles. Yes, on occasion they're called upon to testify as expert witnesses, especially in civil rights lawsuits. Such was the case for Raymond Mole, a well-known and well-respected authority on the history of South Florida. In 1998, he was an expert witness in Anne-Marie Adker versus the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development and Dade County, Florida. The case involved discriminatory policies that the plaintiffs claimed restricted blacks to blighted housing projects, while non-blacks were directed to more desirable Section 8 housing. The court found in favor of the plaintiffs. Mole published his research in a 2001 special issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Using city, county, and federal policies, Mole argues that throughout the 20th century, government agencies played a powerful role in creating and sustaining racially separate and segregated housing in Dade County, Florida. Mole points to sustained efforts beginning with the New Deal era that created federal policies in housing imposed at the local level that maintained racially segregated housing and neighborhoods throughout the 20th century. The Home Owners Loan Association of the period, according to Mole, helped to create the discriminatory lending system known as redlining, In addition, he claims, under the New Deal's federally sponsored public housing program, local housing authorities established segregated public housing projects. In the post-World War II era, he argues the pattern continued in new government projects that included minority housing programs of the Housing and Home Finance Agency, the urban redevelopment and urban renewal programs of the Federal Housing Acts of 1949 and 1954, and the vast interstate highway program. Federal programs implemented by local authorities perpetuated racial segregation in Dade County neighborhoods and public housing projects. Connie, did segregated housing in Dade County begin in the 1930s? No, segregated neighborhoods appeared early in Dade County history when the city of Miami imposed a color line that confined black residents to a particular area of the city that came to be called Colored Town, now Overtown, northwest of the Miami Business District. As Mole notes, when blacks attempted to cross the color line, as they did in 1911, 1915, and 1920, Violence erupted in what the Miami Herald and the Miami Metropolis called an effort to, quote, force the Negroes back across the color line, end quote. 
When in the 1930s Miami sought to expand the business district west, New Deal policies seemed to provide a mechanism for displacing blacks from their segregated neighborhood near downtown to occupy federally financed public housing that would be constructed five miles north of Miami in an area that would be called Liberty Square. Miami and Dade County conceptualized Liberty Square as the nucleus for a new black community, and as Mould explains, put greater physical distance between white and black areas of metropolitan Miami. The full scope of the planned transformation of Miami's downtown can be seen in the Dade County Commission records. In 1936, the commission approved a 20-year development strategy that included a, quote, Negro resettlement plan, end quote, to move blacks to planned communities on agricultural land in western Dade County, some 15 miles from Miami. Praised by the Miami Herald and well-known realtor George E. Merrick, the scheme persisted for decades. In 1945, the commission discussed plans to expand black residential areas in Liberty City, Coconut Grove, and Brownsville. In 1952, the commission promised that this, quote, slum, meaning overtown, would soon be eliminated, end quote. Although the plans never produced the removal of blacks from Miami, Mole argues they were important because the efforts document the thinking of white civic leaders and provide insight into subsequent policies. And Mole also included redlining in his explanation for segregated housing. What was redlining and how did it work? In 1933, the Homeowners Loan Association was created to provide long-term, low-interest mortgages. The HOLA developed an elaborate system for appraising and rating neighborhoods to determine the risks involved in granting mortgages. The system included four categories labeled A through D, with A being the most desirable and D the least desirable areas. Plotted on urban maps, the areas were designated by color, with green for A areas, blue for B, yellow for C, and red for D. The scheme was widely adopted by banks and mortgage companies. In effect, HOLA created redlining and allowed leaders to deny mortgages and loans to residents in older, poorer, and minority neighborhoods. Mould notes that HOLA even rated undeveloped land in West Dade County as D in an apparent recognition that future plans call for the area to be the center of black resettlement. Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act banned racial discrimination in site and tenant selection in public housing. But Mole documents that as late as 1967, internal housing and urban development memoranda show that, quote, local housing authorities were still using a variety of justifications to maintain racial segregation in public housing and tenant selection. Mole concludes Dade County maintained racial segregation by controlling the location of public housing projects and used its planning and zoning powers in shaping the private housing market for African Americans. Connie, major highways often displace black communities. What role did I-95 play in shaping black neighborhoods? Miami's long-desired goal of removing blacks from Overtown was revived and realized with the Federal Interstate Highway Project that got underway in 1956. 
Across the United States, cities saw the construction of interstate highways as a mechanism for revitalizing downtowns and eliminated, quote, blighted, unquote, areas for redevelopment. The spatial reorganization of minority neighborhoods, however, produced, quote, second ghettos, end quote, in formerly white sections or in unbuilt fringe areas of the cities. Miami and Dade County planners never really considered routing I-95 anywhere but through Overtown, an alternate site that would have utilized an abandoned Florida East Coast Railroad corridor was rejected as too small. Tapping into Miami's historic plan for expansion, Dade commissioners noted that the Overtown route would, quote, provide ample room for the future expansion of the central business district in a westerly direction, end quote. Using an aerial image of I-95 and I-395 interchange to illustrate his point, Mole argues that the construction of the interstate highway, quote, took up 20 blocks of densely settled land, destroyed the housing of about 10,000 people, and destroyed the commercial and cultural heart of black Miami, end quote. Mole's concluding paragraph is worth reading in full. For the most part, blacks uprooted from the Overtown Expressway route ended up in Liberty City and more distant communities in northwest Dade County. By 1990, according to Dade County population maps, the entire northwest quadrant of the county had become primarily black. The plans of those who carried out racial zoning in the 1930s and 40s had come to fruition. An important story again. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Jesse Monick, a history student at Flagler College, tells us about the Spanish Military Hospital in St. Augustine. The Spanish Military Hospital in St. Augustine is part of a legacy that goes back centuries to its construction in the late 18th century when Florida was under Imperial Spain. So what other legacies did the Spanish leave behind for Floridians and Americans which impact us to this day? In order to find out, I contacted Jose Gates, a docent at the Spanish Military Hospital and a historical researcher for Spanish and Caribbean history. One of the things that I usually talk about is the healthcare structure that was implemented from as early as the year 1224. The organism of the medical board was born, and from there it just snowballed all the way into the future, very similar to today's structures to any medical boards that we're familiar with today, the AMA, the Board of Surgeons, Board of Internal Medicine, Board of Nursing Associations, etc., etc., etc. Mr. Gates illustrates that our healthcare system is part of a long evolution which has been refined and developed for centuries. The modern conceptions of a medical system being born out of medieval Europe and improved for centuries. Once Spain was united, it too would continue to work on its own medical system, as Mr. Gates had just described. When the Spanish came to Florida, they brought their administrative bureaucracy and military, including their hospital system. 
So, how did the Spanish medical system influence Florida and even the United States? Anything that you're familiar with today in terms of the global aspects of healthcare more than likely would have been born out of our system. So we already had this in place where all professionals would have been regulated. The medical board was uh, related to that. We had professional regulated healthcare providers that took care of the whole system of health for all patients regardless of their location. With background and context out of the way, it can now be discussed the nature of how the Imperial Spanish medical system interacted with the Spanish military hospital in St. Augustine. The Spanish military hospital was built during the Second Spanish period, a period lasting from 1783 to 1821, a time when St. Augustine was an important settlement for the Spanish in the Americas. The Spanish military hospital was therefore more modern of the hospitals. A crucial question to answer in order to understand how efficacious the Spanish military hospital was is to ask what effects the hospital had on St. Augustine during the Second Spanish period. Specific to St. Augustine, we had an element that was, call it one of the stronger chains of healthcare that was provided. One of the biggest numbers that usually pops up in terms of the output from this hospital has to do with survival rates. In this case, we're talking about close to 65, even almost 70% survival rate in a hospital that was managed by the Spanish, and in this particular case, St. Augustine, as compared to other institutions throughout the Americas in the birth of the country itself, where some of the practices and techniques still yielded about 30 to 32 percent survival rate. So that was a very stark product that you can compare the output of St. Augustine's uh, healthcare system. The Spanish military hospital in St. Augustine has a clearly defined track record, making the hospital stand out among its contemporaries. As a bastion of medicine for the surrounding region in Florida, there must have been a strategic reason for its location. Why did the Spanish choose the location they did for the Spanish military hospital in St. Augustine, as opposed to somewhere else? At least for this particular hospital, its reference really had to do with the fact of where the military installation was located. So the Spanish military hospital was primarily utilized to support the Castillo de San Marco and its personnel, a place to provide professional medical care in a relatively close distance from the military installation. The location chosen was not strategic administratively, nor civically. Rather, the ultimate location was chosen for military purposes. There was nothing additional or relevant in terms of strategy for Florida. Although I do have to say that at that very time, we also had other hospitals that were in the location or, you know, the southeast of what's today the United States. Given that there was a structured network for medical care in the Spanish Americas, St. Augustine's Spanish military hospital would play some active role in the system. What sort of connections did the Spanish military hospital have to the Spanish military hospital system and the Spanish hospital system in general? Wherever the empire extended, there was going to be coverage in regards to healthcare. As a matter of fact, going back to our medical board in those days, it was known as the Proto Medicato, and that was the entity that I was mentioning that had been initiated as early as the year 1224. 
one of the main aspects of it is they wanted to make sure that healthcare was even throughout any region of the Spanish Empire that you travel to. Though the sun may have set on the Spanish Empire, their legacy lives on in our history and our present-day society. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Jesse Monick, history student at Flandre College. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and this week, Jesse Monick. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.